Hello everyone, my name is Roger. I'm on the staff team here at Chichester Baptist Church and we are continuing our series called Gospel DNA, looking at chapters three and four of the book of Acts. And we've come to a really interesting part of the story. 71 religious leaders, influential men, imposing men on their home turf are looking to intimidate two very ordinary men. And yet those two very ordinary men are not being intimidated. Well, how have we come to this? Let me take you to Moncton Valley and remind you of the story so far. Peter has performed an outstanding miracle. A man who was crippled from birth now, 40 years later, finds himself healed. And in response to the people's amazement, Peter says this, by faith in the name of Jesus, the man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. The religious authorities have crucified Jesus for blasphemy and there's no way that they are going to let Peter and John go around saying that he is now alive again. So they seized Peter and John. They've put them in jail overnight just to soften them up a bit. And they've interrogated them the following day. And they are astonished that these ordinary, simple, uneducated men speak so confidently and boldly and persuasively about Jesus. Now in today's reading, they're in a bit of a quandary because the miracle is undeniable. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. Verse 16. Now, a modern reader might try to explain it away. That's not Bert wandering around. It can't be. Miracles don't happen. It must be someone else. Or, if that's Bert, he must have been pretending for 40 years. Or, I guess Bert must have been getting gradually better, and I just hadn't noticed. Well, that just doesn't work because these religious leaders knew the man. They'd seen him in the temple courts for year after year. They knew something miraculous had happened. And yet, interestingly, it wasn't enough to inspire faith. Some people say, well, if I saw a miracle, I would believe in God. But you wouldn't. Miracles don't convert people. Miracles make people stand up and take notice but they don't convert them to faith in Jesus. The religious leaders were far from being converted to faith in Christ by this miracle. In fact, what was really frustrating them was that Peter and John were attributing this miracle to Jesus. Verse 17, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. And verse 18, they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So they don't order the apostles not to perform miracles, they order them not to speak or teach in Jesus' name. And that was the one thing the apostles were not willing to compromise on. Verse 19, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. They may not have been aware, but they were echoing some words from the Greek philosopher Socrates. Plato's apology of Socrates claims to be some of the last words that Socrates spoke 
in defence against the charges of corrupting the youth and not believing in the gods in whom the city believe. And according to Plato, Socrates told the court, which condemned him for his teachings, I shall obey God rather than you, before he was sentenced to death by poison in 399 BC. So now, 400 or so years later, Peter and John echo Socrates' words. Fast forward another 1500 years and we find someone else taking a stand against the religious authorities. Martin Luther had become convinced that we don't need to do anything to earn God's favour, but that God shows his favour to us graciously, grace, his free offer of salvation to everyone who believes. The Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope commanded Luther to stop preaching his message. And when they put him on trial in 1521, he told his rulers that, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me. What is it that Peter and John and Martin Luther have in common? What is it that distinguishes their actions from other acts of defiance towards civil or religious authorities? like Socrates' defence perhaps, or modern expressions of rebellion against the state. It's that Peter, John and Martin Luther all express a holy disobedience. Let's start with the word holy. The word holy means set apart. When we talk about the holiness of God, we're referring in J.R. Packer's words to the godness of God everything about him which sets him apart from man. And when we talk about our holiness, we're referring to everything that aligns with God's words and God's standards. There are three things that we might pick out at this point in the example of Peter and John. Firstly, holiness is courteous and respectful. Peter and John follow Jesus' example when he was brought before the Jewish authorities in his mock trial. They're not rude or uncivil or cheeky, or contemptuous, or disparaging or disdainful. And that I think is a real contrast to the F-off attitude that accompanies much of our civil disobedience that we observe in our own times. Holiness is not just concerned with the rightness of the cause, it's also concerned with doing things the right way. Secondly, holiness is consistent. When they are released, Peter and John continue to do the same things that they did before. They aren't men who change their tune just because things start to get difficult or because they're now in the spotlight. In good times, in bad times, in public and in private, they are consistent in word and action. A German motorist was caught speeding at 100 miles per hour, just a little bit over the 60 miles per hour limit. And the police statement said, it turned out he was on his way to pick up new speed monitoring equipment for his hometown, which it seems he will evidently need. 
Thirdly, holiness points people to Jesus. There are expressions of civil disobedience which can be consistent and respectful, but holiness must point people to Christ. Jesus said, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And this is what frustrated the religious authorities about Peter and John. Not that they were respectful and consistent, but they kept on speaking about Jesus as if he was alive. So there are three aspects of holiness that we ought to keep in the backs of our minds. And there are also three elements of holy disobedience that I want us to consider now. The first is holy conviction. The apostles were convinced they were doing the right thing because Jesus had told them. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. More than that, God had vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead, and the apostles had seen and heard him. John Ortberg, in his book Faith and Doubt, writes that we have public convictions by which we deceive others by what we say, private convictions by which we deceive others by what we think, and core convictions which are revealed by our actions. John and Peter held a core conviction that Jesus was raised from the dead and that they had to speak about him. Which is right in God's eyes, they said. To listen to you or to him? You be the judges. The second element of holy disobedience is holy courage. Now, some of us are more courageous than others and some of us appear more courageous than we actually are. And I suspect Peter is a case in point. Before Jesus' arrest, he was adamant he was going to stand by Jesus. But when it came to, he was frightened even to speak out his loyalty before a young servant girl. But one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to give us courage. The Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7. This isn't a natural courage that Peter and John are displaying. This is a courage given to them by the Holy Spirit. Gladys Aylward was a missionary to China in the 1900s. On one occasion, there was a riot at the local prison. Prisoners were killing each other, and the prison governor sent for Gladys and asked her to go in and stop the fighting. She said, if I go in there, they'll kill me. He replied, you're always telling everyone that you have the living God in you. So how could they kill you? I wonder what you would have said to that. No doubt there are any number of theologically sound get-out responses. But Gladys Aylward went in and stopped the riot. That is courage from the Holy Spirit. The third element of holy disobedience is holy compulsion. Did you notice what Peter and John said? We cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. And do you remember what Martin Luther said? Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me. There is a holy compulsion, uh, an inevitability, 
about holy disobedience. The Apostle Paul knew something about compulsion. In his farewell speech to the Ephesians, he said, Compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. And then to the church in Corinth he wrote, When I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Peter, John, Paul, Martin Luther all felt a holy compulsion, a holy duty, because God was in charge of their lives. Let's review for a moment. Holiness is respectful and courteous, it's consistent and it points people to Jesus. Holy disobedience comprises conviction, courage and compulsion. But because it's holy disobedience, it's different to civil disobedience. Holy conviction is more than just a matter of conscience. Holy courage is more than just natural bravery. And holy compulsion is more than just a pet hobby horse. In reality, holy disobedience is a holy obedience to God. And holy obedience is an attitude for daily living. Popular ways for people to express civil disobedience today are through online campaigns or through protest marches. Now I've got no issue with those expressions per se, but it's possible for someone to feel very self-righteous about standing up for a cause in public, but uh, neglect holiness in their day-to-day -day living. It's easy for a company to jump on the bandwagon of a hashtag for justice and yet neglect justice in their daily working practices. You couldn't accuse Peter and John of what today is referred to as virtue signalling. Their holy disobedience was an expression of their active daily obedience. One of the questions this passage in Acts often raises for thoughtful Christians is, when is it appropriate to disobey the civil authorities? Part of my answer is when there is a holy courage, a holy conviction and a holy compulsion. But a far more challenging question for a Christian, I think, is who's in charge? Who calls the shots in your day-to-day -day life? Is it you or is it someone else? Or is it God? Helen and I have recently finished reading a book together by Adrian Plass called Never Mind the Reversing Ducks. Uh, you'll have to read the book to understand the title. But at one point, Adrian Plass refers to a saying of Jesus, where Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, taken from John chapter four, verse 34. And Plass comments, his food was obedience. Perhaps we need a change of diet. This is what challenges me most about this passage. Yes, I'm challenged by Peter and John's brave public stand for Christ before the religious authorities, but I'm actually more challenged by their private daily decisions. 
day in, day out, them and the other apostles, decisions that proved in word and deed that God was in charge. A bold public statement of faith that puts my life at risk sounds very uh, courageous and praiseworthy, and one day it may be necessary. But daily decisions to do what is right, when no one else is looking, when no one uh, can be impressed by my commitment, that I find more challenging. But that's what we're called to first and foremost, isn't it? That's what marks us out as true followers of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel DNA is all about, a daily obedience in pursuit of Christ. Most, if not all of us, are unlikely to have to stand up to the religious or civil authorities in a way quite as dramatic as Peter and John did in our passage. But I'm guessing that this week, today, there will be decisions that we have to make. Whose tune are we going to, to dance to? Whose voice are we going to obey? Are we going to obey the voice of Jesus? because that's what being a follower of Jesus means, being his disciple? Or are we going to obey some other voice, our own voice or someone else's voice? That is the choice of daily discipleship. That is the choice of the gospel. Who's in charge for you today? The Lord bless you.